him better than ever. It's the State of Combat podcast with Brian Campbell on CBS Sports. And it's back with a bang. Coming at you with a fairly lethal dose this week, of course, of that performance-enhancing audio. But also with a bonus interview today, pro wrestling style. Buckle up. This is going to be a long one, but this is going to be a fun one. Your boy BC going up and down the road with the great WWE Hall of Famer Greg the Hammer Valentine, who's not only going to preview the, the very fine pro wrestling documentary 350 Days, which is coming to iTunes DVD very shortly. You're going to want to check that out. More information to come. But the Hammer is going to take us through an incredible pro wrestling journey. From his days in NWA, going dog collar with the late Roddy Piper at Starcade 83, all the way through his IC title run in the then WWF, teaming with the Honky Tonk Man, his exit from the sport in the midst of the Attitude Era, really pulling no punches here. Greg the Hammer Valentine slinging it and bringing it a very fun chat at length with the Hall of Famer. And if you like what you hear on this show, I don't need to tell you much more. You know what to do. Head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume fine audio. That might be on Spotify these days as the SOC has found its way to that platform. Hit us up with that five-star review. Do us a solid. And if this is your first taste of the State of Combat, be sure to check out our regular pro wrestling show this week, which includes a very interesting interview with Mustafa Ali, not only on his Really incredible journey from Cruiserweight 205 Live level action to fighting in a pay-per-view for the WWE Championship this past weekend. Mustafa will not only talk about his rise inside of the ring, but really outside of it, representing both the, the Muslim religion and his background as, of Pakistani and Indian descent and sort of changing the way in pro wrestling those who are from those areas are viewed. A very insightful and an and educational chat you're not going to want to miss. And also, please check out our one-on-one with Roman Reigns from over the weekend on his comeback from leukemia. A lot of good stuff coming out of that. But look, you came here for the hammer, so please don't hurt him. Yes, yes, yes. This is one you actually can touch. Too legit to quit indeed. Wow, that was lame to come out. But come on, we were all big-time Hammer fans in the the early 90s. Let's not act like we weren't. I didn't go as far as the Hammer pants, of course, but you know I was rocking those cassette tapes. You know I was all over the Atlanta Falcons on that 91 playoff run because Hammer and Evander Holyfield were allowed on the sidelines by the great Jerry Glanville. I was all over that, believe me. But this is about Greg the Hammer Valentine coming at you raw in your face. Let's do this. Enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us. Big fans, obviously, of your career, and I've gotten a chance to see this great pro wrestling documentary, 350 Days, which features yourself, Bret Hart, Billy Graham, Ted DiBiase, so many more legendary names now available. Pre-order on iTunes, as well as on Blu-ray and DVD at Walmart.com, Amazon.com, and other retail sites. April 2nd, people can get this on DVD. Greg, I've seen it. In the, I've seen it already, and I loved it. So, like, compelling because it's raw and real about life on the road, about working 350 days a year. What do you like about contributing to this? Exactly what you just said. You know, it's <clears throat> it's not fiction. It's not a wrestling movie like The Wrestler or anything like that. I'm not knocking those movies. But this is a 
a documentary, all <clears throat> legendary wrestlers that 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 made interviews and then the pictures and the, the way it was put together. And I saw it last year in in New York when I was going around premiering, and uh, I loved it. You know, I, I thought it was just a, a great job. It was five years in the making too, so. You know, we got to see guys like the late Roddy Piper on that. A lot of, lot of, lot of voices and, and names people will recognize. And you know, it peels back the curtain. Life on the road, being away from your families, the toll it takes, uh, it took on your bodies, marriages, your mentally. Um, probably not the healthiest way to live. How did you survive that? How did, how did you come out of that in one piece when so many of your contemporaries unfortunately didn't? Well. Uh... I think I did everything in moderation. I made made sure I I got my sleep, um, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of traveling. But you know, I was so engaged in what I did. I loved every minute of it. I'm a second generation uh, wrestler, and and uh, my dad Johnny Valentine. So it was just kind of like, oh, I'm doing what he did, and then I was just a big fan of the wrestling myself. So I, I just, I loved it. That's why I survived it. And like I said, I <clears throat> made sure I got my sleep. I didn't party too much. I, I concentrated on, on my uh, pro career of wrestling. Well, Greg, let's be honest here. I mean, you had a great pro career. You said you didn't party too much. You t- were a tag team with Ric Flair. So there had to be some partying going on here. How'd you survive? Yeah, I used to. Rick yeah, Flair used to. on the road. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I wasn't the instigator. He was. <laughs> well, you're the son of the legend, Johnny Valentine, you mentioned. How much did that make it feel normal, this life, to become a pro wrestler? To, 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 you know, you, did you just grow up thinking this is what you do? It's not, you know, did that remove the pressure? Not, you know. I thought I wanted to, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I thought I wanted to be a, on radio as a disc jockey or sportscaster. I had no idea that I wanted to do this. And he took me on the road in Texas when he was a Texas heavyweight champion before I ever was broken in. And uh, I loved it from day one. We spent four months together on the road down there going from Houston to Dallas to San Antonio, Corpus Christi, all over the place. And, and, I, and I loved it. I loved it. In fact, he used to let me drive the car, and he goes, oh, you'll be a good wrestler if you like to drive cars. <laughs> <laughs> so that was back before they flew a lot. I mean, they we drove and drove and drove, and, and I loved it. So, I mean, I think it was every, everything about it, you know, it just uh, – it made it easier for me because, you know, one of the happiest things in your life is to enjoy what you do for a living, right? Sure. No question. If you love what you do, you're not going to work a day. You worked a lot of days, but but you loved it. You were the hammer. To me, growing up in the 80s, it's, it, it's an iconic heel, a a guy who maybe was doing the strong style thing early, stiff worker, believable what was it about the Hammer character? Who was this man that you were trying to portray? How would you describe him to somebody who hadn't seen you? Well, if you ever saw my dad wrestle, you know what I was trying to I was just trying to be like him, but not copy him, a different version of him, 
but you know I never realized I was that tough but I mean it was a toughness from watching him when I was a kid at ringside it just molded into me and and I I, I would do things in the ring that a seasoned veteran would do and I was only two or three years into the game so it was just like you know it's it's inherited I guess you know the toughness and everything and then there was that technician side of you the figure four leg lock you were a master of it at a point I mean in the 80s where that move was the end that meant something I mean even so much more than when you see guys using it today what was the significance of that move in in getting over your character you know actually I the first seven eight years when I was with Rick Flair and and in the Carolinas and stuff like that. I never used the figure four. And Vincent Mann Sr., God bless Vincent Mann Sr., great guy. He uh, he said, you need a hold. So he uh, I actually, he came up with a figure four leg lock because nobody had used it in the New York area and everywhere except the late, great nature boy, Buddy Rogers. So I'm in the dressing room in Allentown where we did the uh, tapings, Allentown PA, and I'm, I'm putting a figure four on guys back there learning how to do it. And I went out there on the TV tapings and started doing it and then breaking legs and people being carried on stretches. And it was, it was fabulous. It got me to what it got me over and to that peak. By the time I went to Madison square garden after they, they were seeing uh, the fans seeing three months of this, that it was sold out. And uh, so, you know, the figure four became my signature hold, and uh, I loved it. Well, you did something special with it. Because, look, the key to to a submission hold and getting it over is obviously your opponent selling it. But I think you sold it while applying it. The, The pressure on your face, the energy you would put in to make it seem like you were working overtime to snap that leg. I felt like that was unique to other guys who used it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything I did was slow and deliberate. And uh, I don't know if slow is the right word, but deliberate. And uh, to make it get over. And uh, yeah, I would I would sell as much as the guy that was on the receiving end of it. Classic stuff right there. Uh, we've had some unfortunate deaths just as we record this interview. And today in recent weeks, King Kong Bundy, the legendary heel, Pedro Morales, the Triple Crown Champion winner. You got any stories about working with those guys to really illustrate what they brought to the table? Wait a minute. King Kong Bundy just died? Today, yes, unfortunately. Oh, my God. I just saw him uh, somewhere. Um, wow. I saw him at an autograph thing. That's not been that long ago. But, well, I got to digest that a minute, if you don't mind. No problem. Um, yeah, me and Gene Oakland, great friend of mine. Um, Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Those are the last three. There was a guy, Dick Slater, Dirty Dick Slater, that I knew real well. Um, wow. I'm still stunned by that, King Kong Bundy. 
You what know, was the question before you? <laughs> no, I know. I, I, you know, I, I, I caught uh, Chris Jericho off guard one time, telling him Bruno San Martino had passed about an hour before. It's tough to swallow. How you know when you're a Hall of Famer, respected veteran, and, and these guys start to go? How do you deal with that emotionally? Uh, it's it's hard. You know, it's just like, I mean, there's been so many of them, and. and you know, ten going back ten years ago, a lot of guys were young guys were dying like in their forties and stuff from steroids and other kinds of drugs and stuff and pain pills. And now it seems in the latter years or just recently, a lot of guys are just uh, maybe dying of old age or they're just not healthy. I mean, there's Nikolai Volkov who always, every time he would see me, say, how's your wife doing and how are you doing? And, and he'd always try to give me, you know, um, encouragement on eating healthy and all this. And then he ends up passing away, you know? So sure. <laughs> it's, it's not funny. It's just, uh, I mean, what else can you do? It's just very sad. Absolutely. And, and I mean, look, the, the price that you pay in this profession to to entertain fans for so many years it, it's it's no joke and i think you know in the 350 days doc you get into a lot of that so in your you know helping out this film and contributing to it what do you hope that people take of as a message a a warning a remem- a memory of how hard it was or more of a celebration of through how hard it was your love of the profession i hope they i hope they uh take it as the celebration of all the hard work that we did to to uh, put on a, a good wrestling match, and uh, all those guys were dedicated. Everyone in the film, and anybody that really made a name in wrestling, aside for a couple, I won't mention their name, but any any of them, they worked their asses off to entertain the fans, to make it. A, uh, a great sport to watch. Well, I think the first, let's say, the first great match I saw as a young wrestling fan in the 80s, and this took place a couple of years before I became a fan, but it was celebrated by that point, was that Starcade 83 match against Piper, the dog collar match. People can call it up on the WWE Network. It's insane. It's insane for 1983. It's violent theater, Greg. No one needs to tell you that. Did you know heading into that match, it was going to become what it was? That it could become that physical? That it could become that great? Were you trying to steal the damn show? Oh, all those above, especially the last one there, we were definitely trying to steal the show because the, we were like the uh, second main event or semi-final main event or whatever. The main event on that show was a Harley race against Rick flair for nwa world championship so that was the top billing we were right underneath that and uh we did a lot of time preparing and promoting for that particular dog collar match and i had me and piper had been going around the horn for a year or better in the carolinas and this was you know this was the big final match that we were going to have i was a u.s champion the belt was not on the line, so he brought this dog collar from Oregon, where he was from, 
Mud Lake, Oregon or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so we didn't even, we talked a little bit, five minutes in the dressing room. He snuck, o- he snuck over to my dressing room in Greensboro Coliseum. And we winged it. And I think that's why it was so good. Because you can't, it's hard to put a match together. I never did that. I always winged it my entire career. That's why my matches look real. But we out, we went out there and winged it, and, and we we both didn't care how bad it hurt when we hit each other. I mean, we did, but we didn't. It was because we wanted to steal the show. We wanted to make an impression that down the road, 30 years later, they'd still be talking about it like we are right now. And uh, it hurt. It was grueling, but it was a masterpiece. And I watch it every now and then, and I just can't believe it. But we were in our late 20s. We were young. You know, how much is adrenaline taking over in that moment where you're maybe not feeling the pain? Or is that just too stiff? That's impossible. Well, you know, no, it's not impossible because you're, you're, you're set on you're set on making this the best match ever and uh you just you go beyond the pain the pain's still there but you go on i remember one time i took the chain and i wrapped it around piper's head <laughs> and then i dropped an elbow on top of his head and he goes ah oh, i can't say the words he said but <laughs> when he got out of that he just whipped me with that belt and you know i i I blocked the part, the, uh, the belt coming in my head or, or the chain coming in my head or whatever. But, you know, it was <clears throat> the adrenaline, the flow, the excitement of it. And, uh, you know, we made our mark in history for sure. A couple of receipts back and forth, correct? Correct, Greg? Right. The receipts. <laughs> Potatoes and receipts. <laughs> oh, legendary match. Urge all the listeners to, to check it out if they haven't. It's basically uh, MMA with weapons. It's fantastic. But of course, you go to New York, WWF, become the IC champion, and you're in that run of Vince going national, WrestleMania 1. You're a major player. There's action figures. I mean, it went full on commercial. It took over. Was there a, a moment where it clicked for you where you're like, this guy? Vinny, his vision, this is going to work. We're all going to make a ton of money and become, you know, worldwide stars raising from this regional thing. What was that turning point moment for you? You know, I went up and I was always real friendly with Vince Jr. And, and I went up and talked to him one time in Connecticut offices there and, and uh, <clears throat> asked him what he was doing, you know, because I saw what he was doing going against these other promoters that I used to work for in the past. And I go, this guy's getting heat from all these people. He's putting them out of business. But he told me his, his, uh, his look at, at what he was doing. And he says, the way I've got this set up, Greg, is I have to go nationwide. In fact, I have to go worldwide. I'm not trying to put anybody out of business. I really don't think he was. He just, this this WWF was going to be nationwide. It was going to be worldwide. And he did that. And if he put somebody out of business, so be it. Because, you know, he, he paid, when he first went out all over the country, he paid for that TV time. And 
<clears throat> then it, you know, it paid him back. But uh, yeah, that's it, it. It was I knew I was on. I was part of a big, big thing that was going down, especially WrestleMania one, and all the people he brought in, like Muhammad Ali, and 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 you know, it just it was, it was a fabulous time, and it was all breaking new ground and going nationwide and worldwide. We ended up being in Italy and Japan and all over the place, you know, and Germany. My God, you know, and I remember sitting in my hotel someplace in Germany, turning on TV in the middle of the night, and there was wrestling. And in the daytime, there was wrestling. It was like wrestling was on five times a day every day over there. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it was a phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me something. I mean, I go back, I watch WrestleMania 1. You're defending the IC title against Junkyard Dog. The the crowd, you know, for the most part, is on fire in that in that card. The crowd at WrestleMania three in the Silver Dome. Nobody has to remind how insane that was. Why are those crowds different than today? What what was the difference back then? Was it still real to them? Damn it! What was going on? Well, I don't know how the crowds are today because I don't I don't really tune in. I mean, I still watch it, but I mean. I, on TV, you can't really tell. But you're asking a question that the guys made it look more real back then. I'm going to tell you right now, my matches were 98% real, except for the ending. We knew what the ending was going to be. But it was, you know, it was uh, it was all for the people. It was just a different psychology we had back then to make it make it look real. We threw stiff punches back and forth. If I got a shot in the head, that's okay, man. You're, I'll just give it back to you. But it was for the people. It was for the people and ourselves. And, and, and the, the, the thing that I remember, and Vince would always shake my hand when I was coming out, whether it was a father or junior. Fantastic. fantastic. They're talk, they were just talking about the match being good they were talking about being believable and that was the whole thing different than now you know i'm not going to knock the product now i mean i see some good matches but they back then everybody went that extra mile to make it look believable yeah no no question about it i mean it, there, there's just such a difference in the feel and the in the presentation, and like I mentioned, the way the crowd responded to that. I mean, I look back at your WrestleMania two tag team title match, you with Beefcake, the Dream Team, iconic team against the British Bulldogs, and it looks real, looks believable. But that was almost a work rate and a style that you could almost fast forward and put that in today, and it and it, and it wouldn't miss a beat. Did you feel like working with the Bulldogs back then on that level that you were doing something extra special? Yeah. And, you know, if you plug that in today, it would re-educate the people, and, and I think it would be fantastic. The thing that I see about today is they run around too much, and instead of grabbing holds, and, and the psychology is different. But back then, it was just that Bulldog match, all the matches we had with them, was just, they were hard-working kids. They were great. Beefcake was green, but he was great. and. Uh, it just gelled, and I was very proud of the Dream Team. I love the Dream Team, and, and Luscious Johnny V was a was a great part of that on the mic. Uh, 
Did you love cutting promos? What, what, what did you try to bring to the table in promos? Because Brutus had the look, Johnny V can talk, but you always had this sort of quiet, this guy's legit, don't mess with him thing going on. How much was, was that a calculated uh, presentation on the microphone? Well, you know, compare me with Roddy Piper now. Roddy Piper, the little, 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 little zany, you know, all over the place. But his interviews made sense. My interviews were just like my wrestling. It was solid. I didn't go too wild like Ric Flair did or anything. It was a woo and everything. Mine was solid. Uh, I just wanted... You know, just like my matches, I wanted my interviews to be like my matches, solid and believable. And I never talked about any girlfriends I had or anything else, or fancy cars. I talked about the match, and I was going to be still the champion after this match I'm talking about was over. So that's that was what I did. And you did it well, believe that. And you mentioned, look... It was these were stiff. They were believable matches. They were for the people. Sometimes the people though would get a little too close to the action. Did you ever have to hand out a two piece in a bar to defend the sanctity of the job? You got any good road stories of uh, somebody walking into your elbow or anything? You know what? Nobody really bothered me. Um, first of all, I didn't hang out in the bars too much. Maybe at the Marriott where I was staying or something. And then we had security, but I never had any smart asses that would uh, that would come up to me. And what a funny a funny thing! I remember being in New Jersey somewhere at some Bennigans or when they were still around, and this this wrestler named King Haku. Oh yeah, the toughest the, of all time. Okay, so you heard that already. Right? Oh, yeah, he'll eat, he'll eat your eyeball, Greg, if he has to. He'll do anything. Okay, so I'm at the bar with, with him, but he's a few stools down with him. This guy, I mean, it happened two different times. One time in Daytona, uh, Daytona uh, Dayton, Ohio, and then one time in, uh, in New Jersey. And both times I was at the bar with him, they would not say anything to me nothing smarter than anything, but they come up and start picking on him. And I go, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to get killed. <laughs> and that's what happened. He grabbed them, choke them, put them down, and take their, turn their eyeball around or whatever. Oh my God. Why would they pick on this guy? Uh, maybe because he didn't like foreigners or whatever. Why would they pick on this guy and then leave me entirely alone? I never had a problem. Well, if you're Maybe hanging out with Haku, not. you're not going to have a problem. So that may have been a smart move. That, how, do, how do you maintain your body all these years? Hang out with Haku. That's not a bad idea. Could that guy have been an MMA star if that sport had been around 15 years earlier? Yeah, he sure could. I remember the first time I, I went to Japan with him. And the Japanese guys, as soon as you get in the ring, they always try to test you, you know, and test you for real. Well, Haku would go in there and he said, let me start. He went in there and beat the crap out of both of them, and then he tagged me. I mean, he beat the crap out of them for 10 minutes. Then he tagged me, and they were like silly putty when I came in. This guy had tons of respect, and he's still around. He's a great guy. But it shows you how stupid some of these wrestling fans are. They wouldn't come over and give me a problem. <laughs> go to the toughest <laughs> guy in the world and try to mess with him. 
Well, you mentioned Japan. Did you go to the Ribera Steakhouse and get the legendary satin jacket? Sure did. I went there to Japan probably 20 times, and the 18th time I went, someone said, you got to go to that place. So I went to it. It was a little dive, but it was nice, but they had a lot of pictures of wrestlers there, and I got one of those jackets that you're talking about, and uh, I go, gee, they should have made a big deal out of this little hole in the wall that, you know, it's had a lot of uh, legendary people had been in there. So, oh, No question. All right, Greg, you held the IC title during a really key time where it meant something. That was the workers' title. That was the prep somebody for the big dance title. I mean, you're feuding with legends, Tito Santana, Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat, on and on, Junkyard Dog in that era. Did you ever think you were ready for the big belt? You should have been getting the chance at the big belt. Was there ever a conversation? How much did that matter to you at that time? Well, I'll tell you. Me and Tito Santana would go to, say, Detroit. We would be, uh, back then they had three towns a night running, okay, across the country. A, B, and C, oh, yeah. And, and Hogan would be somewhere with whoever. Say he'd be in Cincinnati with whoever. I'm in Detroit with Tito. We didn't need Hogan with us to sell the place out. We sold out anyway. So that's all, all that mattered to me. Of course, everybody, you know, I, I eyed my, you know, I eyed that world belt, and I heard that I was considered a bunch of different times, but you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't let it bother me because, uh, you know, Hogan pretty much had that tied up, and then the Ultimate Warrior, whatever. So it was, it was. I was just glad that I had the IC belt. I had the opportunity to have it for quite a while. Then I had the World Tag Team belts at Brutus. It was all good, you know. It's, it's. Uh, in fact, I did have the WWF belt, WWF belt for 30 days <laughs> back in 1979 when they held the belt up, and I made sure I got my picture made with it several times. So is that during the feud with know, Backlund? Yeah, I was against Backlund. We had the double pin, and, and the guy uh, counted him down. And, and Ray, Actually, they just should have just gave him the belt because he, he was counted out, and I was on top of him. So they held the belt up, and then, then we went back, and he got it back. But, uh, yeah, I had it for 30 days. There it was. All right, when they broke up the Dream Team, I wasn't happy about that. You go with Dino Bravo. Sometimes I read you weren't happy about that. Is this the truth? Absolutely. Dino was a great guy. God rest his soul. He, uh, we, you know, I was the captain of the team when it was a Dream Team, and so when Dino, I don't know if Dino was Dino wasn't. Uh, Really used to be in the heel back then. He was always a baby face. Here, Dino had the blonde hair. I was friends with Dino, but the timing and everything with the new dream team, I hated it. And they come up with a stupid angle against the Bulldogs where we were going to steal the Bulldog and walk around with a collar without a dog on it. And I was back then, I was back then about believability and no cartoon bullshit. I didn't want that. And 
when I look back at it in hindsight, I says I should have just went for it because Dino was almost part of the office because he really got Montreal booked for Vince McMahon and all that. So it was really a a political move. They didn't give a shit about the new dream team. They they figured it would draw anyway. And uh but I got pissed off about it and uh and I I actually ended up quitting. But then they brought me back. So, you know, I just had a lot of pride. Sometimes I should have swallowed my pride and just took the paycheck, right? Uh, well, in hindsight, of course. But I have to respect your decisions because, look, as a fan, I'm riding red hot with, with WWF, with Crockett through, you know, 85, 86, 87. When it started to get late 89, 90, I, even I, as a kid, started to sour as a fan because it got so cartoonish, gimmick-heavy, ridiculous. You mentioned that angle with the dog collar you didn't want to be a part of. Did you feel like the business was changing too far at that moment? Like maybe there wasn't a, a spot for you anymore from the guy who you were from like 83 to 85? That world was over? Yeah, exactly. In 1992, I gave my notice. I said, I'm out of here. I mean, uh, I was done with it. And they had me uh, do that awful job for Earthquake out there who didn't deserve it. And I was just setting it up, Earthquake up for Hogan and WrestleMania 7 in L.A. And after that, I just, I had it. I gave my, I quit. And um, I never returned. I returned just for <clears throat> Royal Rumble a couple different times. And then, but, you know, they ended up paying me back with, put me in the Hall of Fame and a lot of different accolades and, and uh, they still take care of me with all these and stuff. So all's good now. But at that time, I'm thinking, here I beat the hell out of my body for all these years and here they come along with this bullshit, bringing dragons out, bringing alligators out, bringing bulldogs. I mean, the bulldog part was okay, but everybody had a gimmick. And, um, you know, you just, you got, I got dissatisfied about it. So when the business changed, let's say five, six, seven years later, when it's suddenly 96, 97, 98, and the business is the hottest financially it's ever been, it's also a much more mature product. There's more violence. There's more, you know, sexuality, swearing. Was that better for you than 91, 92 when it's too cartoonish? Or was it, again, so far removed from the wrestling you came up in that that, that was it for you? Well, I was in and out of WCW. I went to WCW in 92 for a while. Then I, I went back in 97. <clears throat> and uh, they were more about wrestling than the gimmicks. And Vince was all gimmicked up. But he had the attitude there going on up there, and I think it, I think it had a, a good rebound for a while. It had a lot of college kids that was following wrestling that never did before. Um, so yeah, it got some of the believability started coming back. They had to. They went so far on the bizarre level that they brought it back, and. Um, you know, it's still maintaining the day because it's actually the only show in town. People still love wrestling, and, and you know, WrestleMania is going to 
WrestleMania, I've been, I've been, they always bring me back to those WrestleManias, and they're always a fantastic show. And, um, and the matches are great. You know, it seems like people go out, all go out for that. And, of course, they would. But if you watch it every week and every week, and I, you, you know what I really hate? I hate those interviews in the ring. I hate that. <laughs> and then they're always, once they're out there doing the interviews, you know something, someone's going to run out and they're going to do something. And that's where they do their angles and everything. But I hate it. I like it when they used to do locker room interviews with Mean Gene back there in the back or Gorilla Monsoon or whoever and just keep it out of the ring. I hate that. I hate it. Just once in a while you can do that, but I, all the time, all the time, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with Too you much. completely. Uh, do you have any fond memories of that run in WCW 96 to 98? I mean, the business couldn't have been hotter. You're in there. The NWO's there. All your old friends from WWF are there or, or enemies. I'm not, I'm not going to presume. Uh, you know, you had some moments there. What do you look back fondly when you, on that? Uh, well, they, you know, they took care of me, but I was kind of up and down. They could have gave me more of a push. But, you know, I my fine memory is they sent me a check every two weeks. <laughs> I got a good guarantee. And uh, plus, you know, I was sitting home a lot. You really just used me for television. So I ended up booking myself. I'm in the independent. So my fond memories is, is I, I realized what an independent uh a lot of independent promotions were out there and it was good and it was cash money every night. And, uh, then I started going to Europe on the independent scene. So, you know, one day I got a, a letter. They couldn't even call me. I got a letter. I think it was somewhere in 1998 or something that, that, uh, they were terminating my contract because I was doing all these independent shows. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I just laughed. Who cares? So I have never been under contract to anybody since then, and uh, everything is is day by day. Greg, I think you were the uh, only legend I, you know, in, to not I'm join the NWO. Much, I'm pretty much not going to get in the ring anymore, unless uh, unless it's for a charity event or anything. I can still wrestle, but sometimes it's it's time to just move on from that. Oh, I, I do you. autographs all over the country. I still feel very much part of the business. I I see all the fans at these legendary autograph things and the comic cons and stuff. So I'm still out there, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I did sorry to cut you off there. I did mention you were the only legend during that time in WCW not to join the NWO. You happy about that? You okay with that? I feel that if they would have done that, that would have been good. But they didn't, you know, because the NWO was really hot. But then they ended up spreading it out. They went from four guys or three guys, four guys, five guys. Then they ended up spreading out. There was 15 guys, and there was even a Mexican uh, NWO, so whatever they called it. So they, they ruined it by spreading it out like that. No question. I wanted to get your thoughts on your ex-tag team partner. You had a good run there, Rhythm and Blues, early 90s. WWF, it's the Honky Talk Man. He goes into the Hall of Fame this year. What do you feel about that? I just heard about that a couple of days ago. Well, he deserves it. 
Definitely. He drew a lot of money. That that gimmick that he had was fantastic. The rhythm of blues thing was great, but Vince cut it off. Um, I had no idea. Well, I do know why he cut it off. We were getting over. Uh, the, the gimmick was great. I didn't like the black hair, but beyond besides that, uh, he signed the Road Warriors, who we always wanted, and pretty much uh, he laid us off. But he laid us off, sent me to Japan, and put Honky in the uh, broadcasting booth because Honky was a good talker, and Honky couldn't stand it. <laughs> I can't stand being that Vince man all the time. <laughs> Doing this. So he ended up quitting and he saw how much money I was doing on the independent. So he came out there and joined me on the independent. So, hey, bless him. I, 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 that's a great deal. Who else is going in? Do you the, know? Uh, Degeneration X with uh, yeah, I saw that. China, a part of that. Year. And uh, Tori Wilson. And uh, I believe that's all for the moment. You hear some rumors. Maybe the Hart Foundation with, with the Anvil. Maybe Bigelow. There's some there's some rumors out there. We'll see who else gets announced. Uh, that maybe, maybe Beefcake. Maybe. Maybe. Wouldn't wouldn't be bad. Everyone in that era, it, you know, that founding era is pretty much in. Uh, was, the, was the black hair a rib? No, they, uh, you know, I was already Honky's partner, and they were calling us Rhythm and Blues with the blonde hair. And uh, it was actually Jesse Ventura who did the announcing with Vince, and it, we were somewhere doing TV, and he was talking to Vince. He goes, God, wouldn't it be something if Valentine came out with black hair one time? And that stuck with Vince, and he, for six months, they were following me around Jimmy Hart was mainly. He got out of your hair black. I said, Screw you. I ain't doing that. I hate black hair. But eventually, you know, I said, well, What the hell? Because it really, you know, I was with Honky anyway. I was always, I was always, uh, a lot of people said I sold out to it. But I mean, six months they hounded me about this. And I thought, You know what? I'm going to go out for this gimmick like I always do. And I did the black hair thing. And, uh, but I hated it. But as far as for the gimmick, it was fine. But when the gimmick was over, I went back to the blonde hair right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's iconic. It was a smart move. Now, if Beefcake gets in, same year as Honky, this has to be a big deal for you, correct? Yeah, because that's two ex-partners of mine. Sure. Maybe they'll bring me along to induct one of them. You know? There you go. There you go. That'd be nice. You know, that'd be nice. All right. To close down here, Greg, uh, Vince is still going. Your old boss, you surprised at all that he's still front seat driving that car, making this much money for the WWE all these years later, virtually no legitimate competition. Well, you know, him and Donald Trump are about the same age, right? Mm-hmm. 73, 72. Um, he's kind of like Donald Trump. He just got all kinds of energy. And, and even though he doesn't come out on the TV too much, he's still back in there in the back running things. He's got Triple H and his daughter and who all these other people running stuff. But he's still the captain of that ship. 
And uh, why wouldn't he love it? I mean, he's always he's always done that. And uh, what's he going to do? Sit home and twiddle his thumbs and count all his money? It's you know, that's point. good. I'd like to be counting all that money too. But I mean, he you know he he, he likes being out there, so I'm not surprised at all. And Greg, you got in the Hall of Fame yourself, 2004. What what are you most proud of and most happy with when it comes to your legacy and what you gave to this business? All we talked about, I mean, when they look back, uh, hard-hitting, solid, believable, nice to the fans, respect the fans, respect myself, respect my opponents, respect wrestling in general, even today. I mean, take away the bad matches and stuff. It's still, I mean, there's more fans than ever nowadays. And um, it's a phenomenal, you know, it's it's just been a life, lifelong experience and a good experience on the whole. And this was a great experience talking with you, Greg. A true legend. Gorilla Monsoon used to say, you'd need about 25 minutes to get loosened up inside of a match. You needed a lot less to start providing gold on this podcast. We appreciate it. We want all the listeners, fans, check out this 350 Days doc on DVD, available to download on iTunes, April 2nd, Blu-ray, whatever you want, Walmart.com, Amazon.com, many other online retail sites. Greg, thank you so much. Great chatting with you. You're welcome. Thank you. Wow, really had a lot of fun with that special. Thanks again to the great Greg the Hammer Valentine. Really fun, introspective uh, look at his entire career. I love the the inside details, especially his opinion of where pro wrestling was going in the late 80s and early 90s as it went more commercial, comical, comic book, family-oriented, and where he felt his own worth and value was in the business at that time this guy's old school he's stiff he lays it in there it was still real to him damn it it was still real to me back then i really enjoyed that chat with greg and just a reminder if you love what you hear on the soc here not only do we want you of course to drop in that review it goes a long way in helping this show continue to make movements continue to advance but also please check out what else we're doing on here it's not just the pro wrestling Weekend Review Wednesday edition, which did include an interview this week with Mustafa Ali. Check out our boxing show, which is always wild and wacky. We've got former two-division champion Paulie Malinaji this week as a guest, along with hot up-and-coming Irish featherweight Michael Conlon. we got Paulie talking about bare-knuckle fighting. Can he get Conor McGregor into a ring? You're not going to want to miss that. And, of course, our This Week in MMA show. You're going to want to check that out as well. we got Jorge Masvidal, the hard-hitting welterweight, who is in the main event this weekend at UFC London. And also, we got Ray Seffo, the legend, the president of PFL on the new deal with ESPN. We got it all covered, folks. State of combat. That's what you're here for. The performance-enhancing audio. But look, that's it. We had a good run. We had a good ride. It's time to go. Follow us on Twitter at State of Combat. Follow me at B Campbell CBS. And you know I got two words for you as we exit. We out.